Welcome to Views and Voice Above the Noise, the podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. I'm Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast. Today's topic is an interview with Chris Mills, superintendent for 19 years of the Stephen Argyle Public Schools in the northwestern corner of Minnesota, where we share borders with North Dakota and Canada. Stephen Argyle schools serve around 320 students in pre-K-12. The opening pages of their website demonstrate one of the strong beliefs expressed by the superintendent, that relationships and community involvement are important. The web page is populated with pictures of students who are involved in activities and in their school. The motto of building knowledge to serve others emphasizes the belief that rising waters raises all boats because the purpose of education is to build community with an informed, caring, literate population. There are around 66 teachers in the district but other support staff as well. The graduation rate is 90%. Niche, an organization that ranks over 100,000 schools in the U.S., ranks Stephen Argyle as a number one school in Marshall County. You will hear recurring themes throughout this podcast of beauty of relationships, whether it's adults and children, superintendent and teachers, superintendent and community, teachers and student. At professional development trainings across the nation, we repeatedly hear that the power of relationships of teacher to student is crucial to facilitating learning. Chris believes that power relates to administrators as well. One way Chris lives his belief is by mentoring those new to the profession. He is on the MASA board and active in other organizations such as MREA, Minnesota Rural Education Association. In addition, he encourages others to be involved, to be politically aware, to network. Relationships build community and Chris believes in his community, whether it's the local one or the school community. He is proud of his area and his district. Interestingly, instead of talking of nearby towns, he talks about regional centers, which infers that community goes beyond town borders to extend to the needs and interests of a larger area. You will also hear how the issues in districts, regardless of their size, are very similar. The intensity and concentration may be different, but they have to be dealt with regardless. Such things as mental health issues, chemical issues, and diversity concerns are present in small and larger districts. Early on, as a student, college student, and young teacher, Chris had some noteworthy role models and mentors that were the impetus for him to be where and what he is today. You know, again, I think I had really good role model. Chuck Edwards was an elementary principal when I was young and I really always remembered how he impacted kids and, and some other people that I saw in those positions. I saw our, our teaching staff was able to impact their classrooms, but I saw the administrators were able to impact schools and districts and I always felt like that was a direction I wanted to, or a position I wanted to be in. Jerry Robichaud told me when he was superintendent at Thief River Um, Kind of the same thing. He said, well, how did you make that decision so early? I just said I always felt like that was where I belonged. And he said, I had a 30-year-old son, and he still doesn't know where he wants to be. So, no, I've always had that feeling or direction. Getting into the superintendency was a little earlier than I thought, but I think the opportunity was there and had some good mentorship. As I got into the position at Stephen Argyle, great mentors there, Dr. Bruce Jensen and Jerry Dalzell. 
And so as a result of that, it's went very well, and we've been treated very well, so we've stayed in that area. It's a great place to raise family and a great place to work as an educational leader. In Minnesota, conversations frequently revolve around the needs of the seven county metro schools as opposed to the outstate schools. 55% of kids in Minnesota under age 18 live in the seven county area, which means that 45% live in the other 80 counties. I asked Chris to talk about some of his concerns that small schools face. Small districts worry about survival, number one. I think when you have 296 kids versus having four or 5,000 kids, you're aware of every family that moves in or moves out. You're aware of employment opportunities with families. You're always keenly aware of how things impact your enrollments because you're, you're really worried if at some point you are going to be directed that you should consolidate possibly with another district because there's a lot of small districts up in our area. I think the smallest one in our area is 170 kids right now. And if you go on a 50 mile sweep, probably to 400 kids, there's probably seven districts in that range. I think that type of geography impacts what you're doing. I think class offerings, being able to hire teachers, I think those are things that get more difficult. You're not able to compete with some of your regional centers that are around you with what they can offer, especially in the elective areas. And you're not able to necessarily draw some staff into those hard to fill areas because you're not always going to be able to compete with the compensation structures that are in the regional centers as well. So those are some of the main things as you look at it right away that a lot of regional centers or large districts don't realize. What are some of the issues in what you can offer your students? Well, I I think the idea of offering the elective opportunities, you know, we have districts around us that offer a full art program. We have districts that offer multiple foreign languages. There are districts that offer orchestra, real diverse FIET elective programs. And those are things that we just don't have the, the depth, probably don't have the opportunity to hire some of the staff to provide those programs. But in the same breath, we also were able to offer robotics and Envirothon and a Riverwatch program. We have a full musical that we uh, do every year along with the one-act play program. We offer depth in elementary football, flag football, volleyball, basketball, summer arts theater for elementary kids. And so we are able to provide the programs that our kids and families are looking for. But I also think that there, there are some times that we're missing some of the areas that we have kids that have real strengths in. And the art area is one that I think of a lot. But, but even as we start looking at moving from a two-section school to a one-section school, which we've done over the last five years, some of our, our math opportunities with physics and calc and stats and probability, things like that, those are classes that are starting to move online because we don't have... Again, uh, not necessarily able to continue to recruit high-level math staff to offer that. So the online is an option for us to offer some of these types of electives, but you still have to facilitate those classes. You have to have, you can't just put high school kids into these online courses and, and hope that they're going to be successful. So we still have staff that are in charge of facilitating those opportunities. So I think that's helped us continue to compete. We have kids that are taking uh, health occupations and taking forensics and 
So they're able to get some of those things that they're very interested in as uh, as juniors and seniors. But I, I still worry about sometimes uh, providing that depth and curriculum opportunities and how that competes for our kids. According to statistics on the Minnesota Data webpage, your graduation rate is about 90%. Obviously, teachers and families value education. And many students go on for further education. The strong value of community is apparent because many of your students come back to the area after they graduate. What, how many of your kids, what percentage, go on to college? It's a, it's a pretty high percentage, I would say, on a yearly basis probably about 85 percent. We've been fortunate the last I would say 10 years. We've got a real line of kids that are returning. Some are farming, some are a lot of them are in the egg field which is very um, a big part of our area. Um, we have a lot of kids that seem to uh, go to NDSU and get egg background and come back and work at some of those fields. We've had a couple teachers return which is uh, exciting to see. And so, yeah, we've got some young people that are coming back, and I think we've found that if you can hire people that have roots to the area, there's a pretty good chance you're going to keep them. And I think that's been one of our focuses in filling positions and then working with our regional employers as well as they're seeing people uh, look at their positions. They're looking at those factors as well. Although I would also add that the, uh, there are more jobs than there are people in the region right now. We have a big employer in Thief River Falls, which is 50 miles away, DigiKey, that's trying to add a thousand positions in the next 10 years. And they're putting on a like a two million square foot addition to their facility right now. And so the, the opportunities, there are some real opportunities up in our region, but it's also the unemployment rate, I would guess, is about 2% in our region as well. We've talked about some of the difficulties of a small town area, but by the fact that unemployment is low, college graduates come back to work in the community, your graduation rate is around 90%, many people see value in your community. What do you think it is that is so attractive? I, th I think people like to raise their families in, a, in communities still where, where the community is raising your children. I think they like that when you see bikes riding around town, I think they like that your kids can walk to the pool a few blocks and you you don't have to be as concerned as you do in some larger communities. Um, I don't know that I've locked my door on my house or my vehicle in the 19 years I've lived there. That's not the same everywhere. I think they like that every teacher knows your kid in the high school and elementary. People show up to watch football games and basketball games whether they have kids playing or not. So I think there's a lot of those hometown factors that people still believe in. They see those opportunities when they go away for a while, whether it's just to go to school or maybe they go work somewhere else for a while, and then they look at the opportunities coming back. Um, they may not be able to go downtown and get a McDonald's. They know that it's not that far away, and in today's world, with technology and mobility, to drive an hour and go shopping and have a nice meal and come home sometimes is a good thing. It's a good time to think, it's a good time to talk in a vehicle, and I think people enjoy that. Uh, we have a number of people that work through technology. My board chair is a regional representative for a large uh, chemical company, and he lives in Stephen, but he does a lot of work online, a lot of telepresence work, and, and travels, but yet his family is where he wants to raise them. 
that's a change in our world. You could choose where you want to live and then you can you could travel and do the other things for your employment. You've talked about the value of your community. Many districts are experiencing a change in their populations. Have you seen this? Over 19 years, it's bound to. I think there was a time when we really felt like we were kind of in a Lake Wobegon situation that we really didn't have a lot of diversity, not a lot of uh, special needs with our kids, pretty limited amount of poverty. And because of the dynamics of our community with having affordable housing, being a reasonable distance from three regional centers, we have more families coming in for those for those reasons. And some of those families have uh, additional needs or supports and so uh, our dynamics have changed even though our enrollment also has decreased which is partly just because people are having less kids. Our poverty free and reduced percentage has probably raised about 12 percent over the last 10 years. So it is at 12 percent now? No it's raised we're at about 39 percent for free and reduced for our district. Special ed you know there was a time when we might only be serving four or five kids district-wide and now not only are we maybe serving 20, not counting speech, but we're also seeing some higher needs. So I think that presents some challenges in staffing as well. So far, we've been able to meet those needs and do it at a very high level. In the September 18th issue of the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, an article from the New York Times quoted that last year was the saddest year since emotional well-being has been tracked. Quote, humanity just had its gloomiest year in more than a decade and maybe even longer. This is the first time that we've seen a really significant uptick in negative emotions, which was quoted from Julie Ray, chief editor of the Gallup World Poll. It's as high as we've ever measured it, she said. Many school districts are seeing increased needs for support for those who have mental health issues. Have you experienced that as well? I just think that you're seeing families overall that have more needs. You're seeing more individual needs by kids. There's more counseling needs. There's more crisis needs. It's hard to define what the specific issues are because with each person and each child and each family, it seems a little bit different. It's just that the number of issues have increased dramatically, that people are actually reaching out for more support. And I think also the management of some students and some issues we have more staff reaching out for help because they're trying to figure out how can they be supportive of these families what can they do to support their growth and support their needs because they really haven't had the training and the understanding on how to provide interventions and they know that it's not just a part-time social worker's job it's not just a principal's job it's a faculty support opportunity that's been real challenging for us the last especially the last five years. That's really been something that's pointed out by our staff that they really need the, the training and support in, and so that's been a focus for us. So what type of training have you provided for the staff? We work with Northwest Mental Health on bringing in speakers. We, we work with bringing in a lot of uh, individual professional development opportunities through video. Um, we use Infinitech, and so really feel strongly that Sometimes we have staff that have different needs, and they're able to access some of those video training opportunities. Our staff will, will go to other professional development opportunities, depending on what's offered. In our region, tried to work collaboratively with other schools to bring people in as well, because for us financially to bring somebody in to talk to our 23 teachers and 20 support staff isn't really viable. But if I bring three more schools in, 
now we can bring in just about whoever we want and we can afford that and make it uh, financially efficient. What about crisis intervention teams and your work with law enforcement? We work with Northwest Mental Health out of Crookston, which is again an hour away, which, it, which presents some additional challenges. Um, when you think of a crisis management situation, that means we have professionals available to us, but they're an hour away. Even in the situations with law enforcement, the regional law enforcement center is basically 20 miles away from our high school. Your response time to different situations could be 15 minutes, it could be 45 minutes. You, you just don't know based on countywide staff. Mental health needs in our region have, have certainly increased, and not just in our school, but in the whole region, trying to find staffing, trying to find training. Many of our staff, as they've come through their programs, the mental health was not the focus it is now. Are you concerned about violence in your school? Obviously, region, statewide, nationally, yes. In our area, I don't think that's been a huge issue at this point. We've seen a couple of situations of suicide in a couple of area schools over the last few years. That's a troubling trend. There's some additional substance abuse that's happening. Everybody th sometimes thinks in the rural areas that's not a big issue. It's a huge issue. I believe it's bigger than we like to recognize or believe. We actually have one school in our area that's went to random drug testing with, all, with, with their staff and their students. Anybody who's part of their extracurricular programs has to be part of that program. And that's something unique. There have been states that have done that. I'm not aware in Minnesota of too many schools that have that policy in place, especially in a small rural school. But I, mean, I think that points out to some of the concerns that that school has. And that's not something that we have looked at at this point. But it is an interesting intervention to take when you're looking at some of those chemical issues. What are you seeing in your area about chemical use and what are the issues? It's one of those hidden crises. People don't like to talk about it. It's not something you talk about at church on Sunday. When we've offered parent education opportunities, a lot of people really are very hesitant to participate because the idea that you would participate makes you make somebody might believe that you have issues in your home. It's one of those, well, it's fine for you, but not us because we don't have that issue. And even though they may know that they do have some of those concerns. And kind of back to that, with our staff wanting that training, part of it is they know that they have the relationships with our kids to support them in some of these issues. And they're looking for ways to do that in a, in a quality manner and knowing again that we just, we just have a lot of people that sometimes ignore the issue because it's not, well, it's not that big an issue. It's not that important until it becomes a very big issue. And we're trying to be on the front end of those things, but I, I, it certainly is an issue up in our region. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages in being away from the seven-county area? Well, I mean, I, there's positive and negatives to it. Some of the positives are, it's for myself personally, I'm an outstate person, and so I don't care for the traffic, and I don't care for the congestion of the metro, and I, and I don't care for necessarily having... 2,000 kids in a high school, I think it takes away from the personalization you have opportunities for in schools. It takes away from your relationship building, all those things. The negative side is we have to travel six hours to come and lobby for our kids and try to get resources for our kids in the outstate. And not that everybody's five or six hours away, but if you don't spend time coming in and talk, telling your story, trying to get that balance, pretty soon it's 
it's not a focal point and, and at the legislative level they don't worry about you we're in a per pupil based funding system but the reality is the cost of running a rural school versus a metro school often is much higher per pupil because of the fact that of what you need to offer and the number of kids you have. I know that we've had some legislators over the years that have, well, you just consolidate. We have kids that already get up at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning to get on the bus at 6.30, and they ride 20 miles to a site, and then they shuttle another 10 miles to, to get to their high school. Now we're going to tell them they got to go another 20 miles one way or the other to get to a high school. That doesn't make any sense. Being able to balance those things out to get resources and make sure that legislatively folks understand that there are kids outside of the seven county metro that need to be provided a quality education. Do you have some ideas about what would be more equitable funding so that rural schools wouldn't have the disadvantage because you mentioned that it sometimes costs more to educate a student in outstate Minnesota than in the seven county metro area? I've had discussions with some of my colleagues about the fact that how can funding be equitable if you're offering five foreign languages and six elective art classes and seven elective FIED classes, if you can offer all these things and I can't offer any of them financially, I don't think that that's equitable. We need to work on a formula that funds schools on the basic part of education first. You should be able to offer a core education should be funded at an equitable level. Because if I can offer that at the same financial level in those core areas, I can do some pretty dynamic things in my schools. In my math and in my English and in my social studies and my science areas, I could really uh, expand some opportunities, even though it may not be that I'm going to offer more sections, but I'm going to be able to expand resources and do some different things with that. You know, the elective part and what you do with your referendums and the different things like that, that's great. Those are local decisions, but that base, that base should be funded on what you're offering, not how many kids you're offering it to. You made a point that sometimes it may cost more to educate students in a small rural district. What some people may not understand is that budgeting may be different in small schools. Well, I think rural schools look at their budgets and their reserves differently, and as I think rural, rural teachers do as well. They understand that Reserves are many times based on your survivability, I always say, especially when you're in that, you know, 150 to 500 kids. There's a thought was out with some legislators a few years ago that every school should be 1,000 kids, every school district. And if you're not 1,000 kids, you're not operating efficiently, and you should consolidate all those types of things. Board members hear that. And what board members believe is, okay, some people out there think that, so we need to make sure we're always in a position that the state doesn't make decisions for us. And so by building that reserve, you know what, when I go buy a bus um, for 100000 it's not going to be a huge impact if I only have a 6 or 10% reserve. If I have a 30% reserve, I know I'm planning for the future and I always have a plan, so I always have quality buses. My facilities are always in good shape. When I make those decisions, it's not a huge impact on what we're doing. It's an impact on our reserves and what we've planned to do. It's a different mentality in your planning. We talked yesterday about some large schools that were in statutory operating debt. Well, they're not going to close Roseville. That's not going to happen. But in a small rural district, if you're in that same situation, that's going to be one of the first things they suggest. You need to close or you need to consolidate because you're not operating efficiently. And so there's kind of a double standard in, your, in the financial idea 
from the people who set the parameters that puts small rural schools in a position where they have to think about their long-term viability when they're making those decisions. How could the Minnesota Department of Education, or MDE, help you? I think MDE, first of all, has become a compliance organization because their funding was cut quite a bit during the Palenti era, and it has never been reinstated to be a support organization. That if we were less worried about compliance and we had less reports and forms to fill out for individuals at MDE to read through and check, we might be able to return to a support organization. I find that we do not communicate with MDE a whole lot anymore because there isn't a whole lot there for support. And I understand that part of that is the funding right now that they have is mostly federal and federal, and those dollars are about compliance in those programs. And so for them to even have staffing, they've got to find ways to balance the compliance with that funding while trying to provide some support. And I think they've worked hard at doing that. I think Dr. Casilius has been an outstanding commissioner, in my opinion. I think she has been very, uh, very supportive of schools and the agenda of her governor during this time. Again, in my time as a superintendent in 18 years, by far she has been the most educationally focused commissioner that we've had, rather than politically focused. And there's been some efforts to do things, but I also think that MD is very budget strong in, in trying to be a school support organization. You are active and aware politically. What would you like to see coming from the next governor and legislature? Although I think uh, Governor Dayton has met his promises and obligations for investing in our PK-12 system during his uh, tenure, the one thing he probably has missed is, is looking at MDE and saying, you know what, we, we took all this away during this budget crisis during the plenty time. We truly want the department to be a support organization. We need to reinvest back in it, and that hasn't happened. And our expectation for them to be a support organization without resources, it's just not reasonable. You have been active and on the boards in both MASA and MREA. What has been the benefit of being involved and networking that has benefited you and your district, maybe even all of the outstate schools? Well, I think personally it's been a great thing for me because I've gained continued understanding of statewide issues, the lobbying efforts. I've been on the board for MREA for many years. Balancing out the legislative platforms of the two organizations is very interesting. Coming from the rural perspective, there are not very many people in the room that represent a school of 300. Being able to bring that perspective to the board level, I think, is very important. And I give Gary and Rosa a lot of credit for the fact that we've had those discussions. He's, he's actually listened to the fact that trying to represent the state, we need to make sure that we have people with those types of backgrounds at the table when we're making legislative agendas and we're making decisions. From my perspective, both personally and professionally, I think it's been a great growth opportunity. I think our district has been very supportive of my involvement. But, you know, I travel five and a half hours to the cities to be involved in these types of things one way. And that's a lot of time out of my school district. But I think our, our, our school board has a great understanding of the impacts that we can make. And I think organizationally, 
both at MESA and MREA, we've made some strong impacts the last five or six years on funding that's impacted rural schools. I think MREA is really focused on the outstate schools. You know, there's 224 members of that group, and some of them are members of other organizations. North Branch is a member of MREA, and they're a member of C. MREA has been much more focused on the equity issues and funding. And so we look at a great example is that there were, uh, in the seven-county metro, I think there were 11 school districts that had a funding source for capital facilities for the last 20 years that nobody else had. MREA really brought that to the forefront. Senator Weger and Leroy Stump, they worked really hard at bringing this to the forefront and saying, this is ridiculous. Why would we allow these schools, this funding source, and the rest of our schools around the state are falling down around? Falling down, they're falling apart, and we're not allowing these schools to do deferred maintenance because they don't have the same equitable funding resources. I give Dr. Nolan and Sam Walseth a ton of credit for really working hard with those folks and bringing that to the forefront. And now over a three-year period of time, that's where long-term facility maintenance funding has come from. You know, I look at that as just one example of how MREA has really worked to provide equitable funding sources for those schools that are outside of the seven-county metro. In referendum funding, there were 29 school districts that could not pass a referendum for a variety of reasons, and they worked very hard to look at, again, as an equity issue, and that's where the $300 board-approved referendum authority came from, was to try to give those schools the same equity opportunity, equitable funding opportunity that everybody else has. So those would be two examples where I think MRA has been very active, and in MESA, One of the examples I would use is that Governor Dayton established a funding tax force about five or six years ago on school finance. One of the things that happened as a result of my involvement in MESA was put on that task force because they were looking for a rural perspective on the school funding. A lot of the recommendations that came out of that task force have been implemented, both in special ed and in regular funding. We, we sometimes think individually we can't make a difference, but I really believe if, you're, if you choose not to be involved, then you have no choice. You're going to get whatever you get, but at least if you've taken the time and invested it, you could say that you're working towards it. You, you, at least you have a reason to complain. Sometimes there is an unconscious feeling that bigger is better, that being a superintendent in a larger district is more prestigious or better than being a superintendent in a smaller district. From your perspective, what do you see as the advantages of being a smaller school district superintendent in outstate Minnesota? There are diverse amount of responsibilities because you don't have the necessarily the support network that happens in some larger schools. That also gives you opportunities to learn in so many different areas. In my time, I think that's why I've become pretty good in school finance. But I've, I've driven a bus. I've worked with the bus routes. I've shoveled snow in the front. I also get hugs from kids because they know who I am. My special ed teacher in the elementary emailed me yesterday and said, I had the, she said, I just had to send this to you because it was great. She said, uh, I just saw two kindergartners coming down the hallway, and one said to the other one, don't run in the hallway. Mr. Mills can see you on the cameras. And I just think that some other people miss out on those things because they maybe only walk into a building four or five times a year and kids are looking at them, you have a tie on, you must be important, but other than that, I don't know who you are. And when I walk into our two buildings, every kid knows who I am. I walk into the grocery store, I walk in anywhere else, you, you become the face of your community. Take that on 
for the good and the bad sometimes. There's a lot of satisfaction for you as being a, not only a school leader, but a community leader. And raising a family, representing your community in that manner is a, is a pretty cool thing. And I also think there's a lot more opportunities when, outside the seven county metro because you're talking, uh, there's 341 school districts in the state. And I'm going to say that 240 of them. 250 of them are outside of the seven county metro so a lot of those positions and leadership opportunities are in the rural areas. Chris Mills has been a superintendent in Stephen Argyle for 19 years. He repeatedly advises leaders to be engaged, be involved, and to network with others because relationships are so important to establish community. His caring for kids and adults and for public education is very apparent. My favorite philosopher, Dr. Seuss, is still on vacation. I think he's in Croatia or somewhere exotic. He might be out of a job when he returns because it seems that wise words come just as readily from our school leaders. For example, I'll leave you with wise words from Chris Mills. Quote, if you choose not to be involved, you have no choice. Unquote. This is Jane Sigford signing off. Again, my email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thanks for listening.